Sounds like I'm chewing on something. Well, that was extremely kind. Um, I love Luke Thomas, and he's one of those guys uh, I would echo that you never feel like you quite get enough time around. And um, even the short time that I spend around him, uh, I always feel like I experience Jesus when I'm in his presence. So um, grateful to be here this morning. Thanks for having me. And um, we'll just jump right in. So like Luke said, my name is Stephen Blackburn. I'm the community life pastor at Redeemer in Johnson City. And he called me early in the summer and he said, uh, I want you to preach your favorite or your best sermon. And I'm the community life pastor. I preach like twice a year. So um, I was like, man, you're just trying to make people feel really thankful for you at the end of the summer, aren't you? Um, so just, just bear with me. But I think that uh, what we'll go over today is, is helpful. It's, been, it's not my best. It's not my favorite. But it is the sermon that talks the most about the way that the Lord has affected my life in the last five years and the things that he's taken me through. So I just want to share that with you. Um, so where we're going to go this morning is uh, I've had quite a few twists and turns in my faith journey. And um, I just want to kind of tell you a little bit of my story and then, and then go into scripture and then give you some application. So let's, let's pray as we get started. God, thank you so much for this body of believers and the reminder that uh, there's believers all over this country that are meeting together this morning and that we all have something in common. And the thing that we have in common is Jesus Christ. And just what a gift it is to be among other people in another town who believe in your gospel in the same way. Uh, Lord, I pray that your presence would be here this morning, that you would speak uh, that, that my words would be forgotten, but that you would uh, touch lives and hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. So December 18th, 2014. First of all, I'll let you know, I have a wife of 10 years. Uh, we're coming up on 10 years. But I have three kids. Uh, my boy is eight years old, a daughter that's six, and another daughter that's four and a half years old. So as I start into in what I'm saying, I'm talking about my youngest girl as I tell this story. So December 18th, 2014, is one of the most joyous days of my life. In addition to the birth of my other kids and my marriage to my wife, it was just an incredible day. You get to hold your daughter for the first time. I knew the typical struggles that were going to come after that. Uh, you know, three months of just absolutely no sleep, crying, dirty diapers, tears. I knew the joy, I knew the fatigue, I knew the laughter and the exhaustion. I was ready for all that. I had given myself a pep talk. I was ready to go. From day one, though, when we held our daughter, Willa, my wife knew that there was something off. There was something different about her that hadn't been there with our other kids. And it was with, specifically with her vision, with her eyes. So Allison believed there was a problem. I was the eternal optimist. I'm like, she's fine. I'm sure we just need to get some therapy. As she gets older, it'll correct itself. No worries. So we visited our pediatrician, and he referred us to a pediatric ophthalmologist. He wasn't quite sure what the issue was, so he referred us there. I walked into that appointment feeling, for the most part, like we're going to get answers, everything's going to be okay. But it wasn't long before the doctor told us some news that we weren't looking forward to hearing. He said, your daughter is blind in one of her eyes, and she's just 10 weeks old at this point. And that was really difficult, really difficult to hear. He told us that her retina was detached and that it had been that way even when she was in the womb. 
So she had never had sight in that eye. At least that was a little bit reassuring. Like, she's never going to know the difference. But it was really tough to hear. And I wasn't really understanding at that point what the issue was. I thought it was just, oh, this, this happens sometimes. Um, so he mentioned some therapy options, some things we could do. And again, as an eternal optimist, I'm like, okay, we can, we can deal with this. We can get through this. But then he took a little bit of a different tone with us, and he said, I'm going to send you over to the med center. Uh, we, need to get, we need to get a CT scan. We need to figure out why her retina is detached. I still wasn't really getting it. I didn't really know what a CT scan was. So that night, as we're, we, we go to get the CT scan, we go home, we're hanging out in our living room, and that evening, the door that leads from our garage into our living room just opened, and in walked some of my closest friends who are also our child's pediatrician. Him and his son walked through the door, and it just caught me off guard. I just thought, this is weird. They didn't knock, they just walked in. That's fine, but what's going on? They had seen the results that we would have heard on the phone the next morning, and they wanted to tell us in person. So we walked in. My friend Chris took our two other kids, took them upstairs to play, and our pediatrician sat down and told us that our child had cancer. And I just felt like I'd been hit by a truck. That night was really, really difficult. Lots of tears. It's that desperation in your heart that you just never felt. So there was prayer, there was crying out to God, there was doubts, there was fear, there was wondering if Willa, my daughter, would die. Um, wondering if we would have to watch her go through chemo and radiation. That sick feeling of desperation in your stomach where you feel like you could explode because you love them so much and you're also so helpless at the same time. You can't take it on yourself. It's something that you can't take from them. It's just helplessness. So Willa's story is this miraculous testament of God's faithfulness. And normally when I tell the story, I tell a lot more of the, the miracles and the journey and, and, and what I saw God do and the purpose of it all. Um, but today I want to kind of focus on, on the struggle and, and on the difficulty. Um, because I think it's really important to admit when things are really difficult and sit in them for a little while and then give them to the Lord over time rather than just writing them off as... Well, God's got this, you know. So despite the miracles and the joys, which I'd love to tell you about sometime, the last five years have been incredibly hard on this journey. Uh, seeing your daughter have her eye removed, which happened. Seeing the way that people looked at her uh, while she was waiting for her prosthetic to be, to be made. Uh, wondering, how is she going to grow up? What, is she, what challenges is she going to face as she grows up? Uh, watching her learn to walk and struggling with depth, perce depth perception. Those were things I never thought that we, would, that we would deal with. And then we met other families whose kids had, had the same issues. Uh, we went to St. Jude and we've made countless trips down to Memphis for her care. So we've met a lot of other families around the country whose children have the same, the same issue. And some of those kids have died. Some of those kids have gone through chemo and radiation and lost their hearing, lost their sight. And they're just little toddlers, you know? So a lot of this journey has been struggling with God's goodness and also kind of wondering when the next hammer would fall. Uh, what, what's going to be the next bad news we receive? And it was really hard to get away from that cynicism. And the dynamic of our family changed a lot. That was something that I didn't see coming. 
those countless trips to Memphis. I couldn't get enough time off to go on them all, so my wife Allison would take our youngest. I would stay home with the other two. It's really difficult, difficult times. Allison would cope in different ways than I did and at different paces, and we didn't always know how to articulate the emotions that we had and the thoughts that we had to each other. So there was this distance that started to form between us. I struggled with God. I struggled with his goodness, his sovereignty. I wondered about his nearness or his concern in our life. I had doubt. I had anger. I had hurt. Just numbness at times. Depression and sadness. Exhaustion. And then escapism in many forms. My wife and I both. So normally, again, when I tell the story, I normally focus on the good, but it's important to, to sit in the bad sometimes and just admit that life is really hard sometimes. Sometimes it just really sucks, you know? And that was hard for me because I'm, I've always been the kind of guy who thought, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this. Push through one foot in front of the other. And I think through this process, I've learned that that's, that's a bunch of crap. We need Jesus. So before you can begin a road to recovery, you've got to admit that you have a problem. And that's kind of like suffering as well. In order to begin walking well and healing and coping in correct ways, you have to admit that it stinks and it hurts and it's not okay and it was never meant to be this way. But many people, especially here in the South, you'll hear comments like, well, don't you worry. God won't ever give you more than you can handle. Or, God just knew you were strong enough to go through this. Those things are not helpful. Those things are not true. Those things are based on Scripture taken out of context. I think what they're talking about is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Nothing in that verse talks about suffering being light or easy to handle or about us being strong enough to deal with it. That verse is talking about temptation. Very different. So it's important to go to God's word and hear his truth, not to just hear the taglines that we've grown up with our entire life in the South. I only bring this up, I only even go there, because I believe that there's many people who are suffering. Many of you in here today may be. And maybe you think you're the only one who can't cope with life. Or that you must be some special form of pathetic because you can't get past something that's happened to you. And you can't carry the burdens that have come your way. And for those people, I just want you to hear that that's completely false. It's based on false interpretation. We are all hopeless to cope or deal with the suffering we encounter in life on our own. And that's why we need Jesus, and that's why we need the gospel. So why talk about suffering this morning? For me, there's nothing in my life that has been more difficult, that has caused more struggle or doubt or questioning of God than suffering. And often I've drifted away from him during times of suffering, and I think many of you can probably relate to that. And at the same time, nothing has been more formational or confirming of my faith than walking through suffering and seeing the way that Jesus can redeem it in beautiful ways, miraculous ways. So I'm willing to bet that you guys have stories of suffering. 
that suffering has touched your life. My story is unique to me, but I know that you have your own as well. So I want everyone, if you have a pen and paper, I want you to take your pen. I want you to write down the thing that is currently or recently touching your life in the area of suffering. Just write it down. It can be something you're currently struggling, struggling with or going through, something from the past that still affects you. It could be your suffering or the suffering of someone close to you. It could be the death of a parent, the death of a child, sickness or chronic pain, fatigue, something that you're powerless to change. It could be abuse from your childhood. It could be wounds that you received growing up. It could be the way that your sin has affected others or the way that their sin has affected you. It could be a broken relationship, a lost job, feelings of isolation or loneliness. It could be emotional, physical, mental, spiritual, or social hurt. But when you think of this personal suffering and you think of God, underneath what you've written already, I want you to write what emotion or words come to mind when you think about that. Write them down. Whether they're good, whether they're bad. They might be really ugly and honest. But be honest with yourself. Be honest with him. And then under those words, I want you to, to write what's the biggest question you have for God through that suffering? What's the question that you have for him? It could be, are you faithful? Are you good? Are you even there? Do you care for me? What's that question that you have for him? And I'll give you a moment to think about that. Keep that around until later, and we'll revisit it in just a few minutes. For those of you who are familiar with Scripture, you're not going to be surprised. We're going to delve quickly into Job. It's not going to be a verse-by-verse -verse coverage. It's just going to be quickly kind of an overview of the whole book. Uh, Job is a really interesting book. It has an anonymous author. The story takes place in, in kind of this obscure place and in no particular time in ancient history. It's like the author doesn't want you to get hung up on all that stuff. He wants you just to read the story and, and take away what, what's there. So the long story short is that Job is this righteous man that follows God. He's blameless. He has a great family, a great life. He's got prosperity. He lives a really, really great life. Satan goes to God and he's like, Job only follows you because you blessed him so much. He's got so much. If you took it away from him, he would turn from you. He only follows you because of the plentiful things in his life and just the good things that you've given him. So God lets Satan have his way for a little while. God allows it. And Satan inflicts incredible pain on Job and his family and his life. He wipes out most of his family, uh, his livestock, his riches. He has horrible pain and sickness. Basically, you think of the worst things that could happen to you, and they all happen to Job. He's sitting there in the dirt, scratching himself with pottery. He's just in misery. He's experiencing physical, emotional, mental, relational, all kinds of pain at extreme levels and all at once. So most people, when they're reading this, are like, why in the world would God allow this? And that question never gets answered in the book. But we do gain a little bit of insight. As Job is in the midst of his suffering, he's met with three friends, friends, people he, know, he knows, they weren't really acting like friends. 
but they converse back and forth with him, and they really cover three questions. Is God just? Does God rule the universe on the strict principle of justice? And how do we explain Job's suffering? And this, these three questions are aided by the Gospel Project. That's where I got some of this. So these friends have a massive assumption about Job, that every human action is met by God's justice with a one-to-one relationship. So do good, God will be good to you. Be bad, God will make you suffer. That's what these guys believe. Job doesn't understand why he's suffering because he's blameless. Even God says he's blameless. He's innocent, he's righteous. So Job starts to think over time that either God doesn't run the world justly or he is not a just God, and he accuses God of that. His friends disagree, and they're like, no, God is just, and he runs the world completely according to justice. Therefore, you must have sinned in a really bad way to have this bad of suffering. But Job continues to tout his innocence. He eventually gets tired of his friends, and he takes up the case just directly to God. He's angry, he's upset, he can't reconcile what's happening, but he goes to God with his confusion and his frustration. He just takes it to him. And he throws his hands up and he declares his innocence one last time and he demands that God give him an answer. And at this point, another friend shows up and he's got a little bit different perspective. He says, I think God is just. And God runs the universe justly. But maybe suffering isn't punishment. Maybe it's a warning for future. Or maybe it's just to build character. But he does say that Job is wrong to accuse God. And then God shows up in this whirlwind and he reveals himself to Job. And some of the most chilling words you'll hear in scripture because of their power. Job 38, 41. Just to cover a few, verse four of chapter 38 says, God asks, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Can you imagine God speaking those words to you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 8, who shut in the sea with doors? Who made the clouds? Can you command the morning? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Can you send forth lightning? So what's God's point in all of this as he sends this barrage of questions toward Job? Job and his friends are assuming that they have a big enough perspective to make a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God points out that Job only has his life experience. He can only pull from that. And he makes his assumptions not on the vast, endless scope of the entire universe and its intricacies that God has, but on his tiny, minuscule, acute vision of his experience. His view of the world is very small. What seems like divine injustice to him must be looked at from a larger context. Job can't see it from God's perspective and context. He can't zoom out enough. Job isn't in a place or a position to accuse God. So what can we understand from Job's suffering? First, Justice in our world is an extremely complex topic. We need to see the world more from God's perspective. It was said by someone, the world is, an, it, the world is amazing and very good, 
but it's not perfect and it's not always safe. The world has order and beauty, but it is also sometimes wild and dangerous. So we come back to the question, why is there suffering in God's world? God's answer in the book of Job is something like this. We live in an amazing world that as of right now is not designed to prevent suffering. That's the answer. And that's not the answer we're looking for. So Job says that God is unjust. God tells him he isn't in a position to make that claim. Job demands an explanation and God invites Job to trust his wisdom. Job responds with humility and with repentance. So God honors Job and says that he has acted rightly. He's not talking about the accusations and the untrue things that Job said. He's talking about how Job came to him with all of his emotion, all of his pain, and he wrestled honestly with the Lord. Job simply wanted to talk with God himself, and that is exactly where God wanted to bring him to. God says this is the correct way to process through all of this struggle, is prayer. It's coming to the Lord. So the book of Job doesn't answer the question about the reason for suffering in our world, but it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we encounter suffering, rather than searching for reasons, to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God, and to trust that God cares and knows what he's doing. And that is extremely, extremely tough. To not get answers, to not have answers at at times. So how does the gospel help us when we feel far from God? How do we deal with suffering in life? We go to God, but how do we do that practically? When we remember the ultimate cause of suffering in the world, we remember that it was sin. Sin caused suffering, and that was our fault in the Garden of Eden, and it's followed mankind ever since. Sin opened the door to suffering. But the gospel turns that narrative on its head by sending Jesus through that suffering to defeat death. It helps to remember that Jesus suffered for us and he continues to be near to us in our suffering. So as I stand here this morning, I've got to admit that over the last four or five years, my my daughter's now getting close to five years old, I haven't always suffered well. I've suffered really ugly at times really shamefully at times. And in a lot of ways, I haven't known how to suffer. It's been a growing learning process. So in these last few minutes, I think it's easy for us to say, let's like, give our lives to God, or let's rest in Him, or let's go to Him in prayer. Sometimes that's not, it doesn't seem doable. How do we do those things? It sounds so simple, but how do we give our lives to Him? How do we rest in Him? I want to, but how? So I want to give you a a few practical things that have helped me over the last five years that I've learned in the last five years that I want to try to remember as I encounter more suffering in life. And maybe they can help you as well. I've failed at these things more than I've succeeded, and that's how I'm starting to learn them. So the first one is to know the difference between grief and self-pity. When we go through difficult times, when we go through struggle, when we suffer, the appropriate way to handle that is grief, honest grief. Uh, We see Jesus grieving in Scripture. Um, He felt the weight of the world. He felt the weight of sin. He felt the weight of relationships, of his deep love for people and their brokenness. He felt grief. And it's appropriate to be honest about that and to sit in it for a little while and to say, 
this is not right, and to cry out to the Lord. But grief is different than self-pity because when you go into the world of self-pity, um, you start to think about entitlement. I deserve something that's different than what I've gotten. Therefore, woe is me, my life is so awful. And you sit in this cynicism, you sit in this bad attitude. It's a place of feeling like you deserve something good that you're not receiving. So it's really important to look into your heart and say, am I grieving this because it's really difficult or am I just feeling sorry for myself? The second thing is to doubt your doubts. It's natural when we go through difficult times of suffering to wrestle with the Lord and to question what's going on. It's natural for Christians to sometimes have doubt about God or toward God. But if we're gonna, we know as Christians, we're gonna suffer. It says in scripture we should, accept, we should expect that. So when suffering comes and that creates doubt, we need to have the intellectual and emotional honesty to also doubt that doubt. Not to just sit in the doubt of the truth, but to doubt the doubt of the truth. I hope that makes sense. But in my head, I had to get there because I was doubting God's goodness, I was doubting his sovereignty, I was dealing with him in ways that probably weren't healthy. And it finally occurred to me one day, I have to push back against these doubts and apply truth to it, or I'm just gonna be in a downward spiral. When you doubt your doubts, it drives you back to the truth, and the truth will set you free. The third thing is, ask the right questions. Turn things on their head, turn them around. It's really easy when you're suffering to say, God, why is there so much suffering? That's an easy question to ask because it's coming right out of our emotion. But a harder question, a more honest question, a, a question that would be more helpful is, why is there so much good in the world? Why has God held sin at bay to the extent that he has? Why has he held suffering at bay to the extent that he has? We deserve wrath and destruction, except for Jesus. So why is there so much good? Why does he have so much favor toward us? Why does he love us so much? Rather than just saying, why is there so much suffering? Because if we want to go there, we can always look back at Jesus, who suffered more than anyone on the face of the planet in all time and all history. Fourth thing is to use the gifts and tools that he's made available to us. We know that we have, we have prayer. We have the ability to speak with God. We have God's word, we have scripture that can encourage our hearts. In Jesus' hardest times of suffering, he quoted scripture to himself. That's a great example for us. Prayer, scripture, he's given us community. He's given you the people in this room to walk through life with, to bear each other's burdens, to love one another, to care for one another. He's given you things like music, to worship. He's given you the beauty of nature to see his glory. These are all things that we can focus on in times of suffering. And specifically, prayer. Three or four years ago, a friend of mine named Elliot saw that I was really having a hard time. He pulled me in his office. We worked together at a church over in Raleigh. And he said, have you ever prayed prayers of lament? I was like, no. What are you talking about? Read Lamentations. That wasn't any fun. <laughs> he said, have you ever prayed prayers of lament? No. Tell me what to do. How do I do it? He goes, take your journal Go out for an hour or so, spend time with the Lord, and write down your raw thoughts as you pray to him. And do that for two weeks at a time. Just write down these raw emotions, these raw thoughts that you have. And I did, and it was ugly. I wouldn't have wanted anyone to read them. Uh, 
to hear the words that I use and the emotion that I expressed and the things that I wrote down. I go back and read those now, and I'm glad I did it because it helped heal me. I felt the presence of the Lord come into my life through that. But he's given us this tool. He's given us prayer, scripture, community, and these other things that point to him. We've got to use them. The fifth thing is look back and look ahead. When you're in suffering, you have to remember his goodness and his provision in the past. You have to think about and bring to mind and talk about the ways that he has been faithful in the past. Bring those things back to your attention. Put them before your eyes so you can be reminded of them. And then trust in the good ending that we have waiting on us. We know that we will see glory if we trust in Christ. We know that the battle is already won, that eventually we will be in heaven with Jesus for all of eternity. That is where our hope rests. So we see his faithfulness in the past. We have the hope to look forward in the future, and we can trust him in the present. The sixth and final thing is to remember Jesus and to reverse engineer our thoughts. We think about the first garden. Sin produced temporal and eternal suffering. The suffering was immediate and also caused eternal death and separation from God. But then there was a second garden, right? With a better Adam. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and went to the cross to pay for us. His righteousness entered into suffering and defeated eternal suffering, though we still deal with temporal suffering while we're here on this earth. But we have a Savior who gives us the hope of knowing how the book of life ends, and a Savior who encourages us with that hope, as well as exemplifies how to walk through suffering. We look to him as our example, and we look to him as our hope. He gives us an open hand, and he invites us to trust him. Each of us has that choice to make. Will you follow him? Will you trust him? Will you lean into suffering? and let him walk beside you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you walk with us through suffering, that you are an example to us, that we can look to you as our hope. God, may our hearts rest in you more and more each day, and may you give us the endurance that it takes to walk through life and to have joy in our days and to trust you with our entire beings. Thank you for your love for us. Amen.